Welcome back, Flight Soup Friday listeners. What's up, Kenny? How you doing? Good, Sam. How are you? Man, I'm good, dude. I'm excited to uh, get into it today, talk some podcasting. How's your day been? What have you been up to? All kinds of stuff. Yeah? Um, normally, we, we make fun of ourselves for how much planning we'd like to do or, or lack thereof, but this might be a record for us. Nah, I, dude. We have plenty of planning on this one. At least. Uh, we're under 30 seconds. We're <laughs> Hey, it wouldn't turn out as terrible as it usually does if we didn't plan as, as low as we usually do. Yeah. Uh, well, I we've got a couple good things going out in the fleet. So uh, you want to jump into some highlights? Yeah, let's do it. All right, let's do it. All right, first, we're going to start off uh, with some things going out on Hawaii. They had a lot of firsts going on. So let's see, Lieutenant Gleb Borovac had his first live hoist along with um, AMT3 Colton. And uh, let's see. Also, allegedly, they're claiming that they have the first uh, aviator reservist that got a live save. That's uh, Eric Anderson out there. So no way. Yes, yeah. that's, that's awesome. Those are some good first. What did uh, what was the medevac uh, two survivors? What was it fishing vessel triple dragon? The triple dragon baby. That's a, <laughs> there's a lot of things that come to mind when I hear the name triple dragon. Uh, 80 miles south of Oahu, uh, crew member with facial injury, uh, boat captain showing signs of sepsis. Uh, so harness deployment got those guys off. That's awesome. Um, we also got a great shout out from uh, recently from SACTO, C27 crew. Let me pull that up real quick. Um, yeah, so the ops boss out there, they had a, a great weekend star case. Um, CDO called them sometime uh, in the afternoon on Sunday for, <laughs> this is kind of funny, fishing vessel Blue Dragon, not Triple Dragon. Uh, <laughs> and uh, they had, uh, it's the Blue Dragon 2, 9 POB, 360 miles southwest of Monterey, uh, California, taking on water. Um, about uh, in the compartment, 20 by 20 foot compartment, uh, the water was up like 10, 15 foot deep. Ship's pumps were struggling. Ready crew launched. We got uh, Sergio Fletes uh, as the AC, Lieutenant Greg Wilcox as the co-pilot. Uh, drop master was Gavin Main, AMT3. Uh, sensor uh, was AT2, Tyler Coach, and, or sorry, Koch. And uh, basic air crew was AMT3, Alexander Harris. So um, they thought to grab an extra dewatering pump, which was pretty cool. So they usually fly with one on board. Uh, they said they needed both of them completely, and uh, uh, they actually got it stabilized. So... Uh, kudos to the air crew. I mean, it must have been a fun drop that got it to the boat too. So yeah. nice work. Well, sounds like both of them. Both of them. Yeah. And uh, interesting, it sounds like they uh, flew on the same boat in November of 2021. So maybe it's just a recurrent SAR thing that they like to have around this time every year. <laughs> this boat goes out and asks for help. So, all right. Anybody out there uh, who has shout outs, please send them to Kenny and I. We'd love to uh, rep you here on the podcast and uh, love to hear all the good SAR that's going on there. It makes me... Uh, feel a little bit left out because I want to be doing it, but it's, it also, it's just great to hear how, how well everybody's doing out there. So nice work. All right. Moving into fleet news. Uh, we got a special guest here, Blake Morris. He's been on the podcast before, but, uh, he's here cause we don't know the difference between like interim changes and manual stuff. So Blake's going to be the expert. Blake, what's going on? Balake. Uh, <laughs> Welcome, dude. Thanks for having me here. Yeah, man. Uh, we we had some big changes, and you've been kind of the impetus for a lot of this. Uh, what has just changed with the Echo and Delta Dash ones? Yeah, so a lot of uh, changes uh, both happening already and then coming along with Delta and Echo. Um, so the first one uh, was change one to both manuals. Uh, and the big part about change one was, uh, a complete change in our performance charts and our Todd card. So nice. 
both brand new things. Hopefully they're better. I think it's going to take a little while for the fleet to get kind of used to using them. Yep. But uh, the background on that was it was part of the Echo project um, and that funded it. And then the uh, data was the same flight test data as there was from 2006 with the Charlie. Mm-hmm. Um, and they just put it through new modeling and, and new plotting. On oh, the nice. Charts. Was so, that Pax River that did that or? It was, it was Nav Air. Nav Air, okay. That. That's cool. Um, uh, besides the one time a year that I definitely hand jam a Todd card, uh, I like to do the E-Todd. Has that been updated? Can we uh, or expect something new from uh, the CEO of Savannah? Please, yeah, so sir. .com, he's actually here for his uh, Echo transition, even though he probably has more hours in, than we do right now. But uh, <laughs> the good news is, I guess he does have it. Uh, we're kind of running it through its paces to make sure that uh, it uh, will work under whether you got Intune or 365, once again, I don't know the difference of these technological upgrades, but oh yeah, we're working on it. It should be out, I think, in the next three weeks would be my guess. Nice. That's awesome. And then also was the the change that they had for the Fire EP uh, in flight, right? So well, what change is that one? So that's uh, an interim change to both Interim animals. change. Okay. So it's interim change, two for the Delta, one for the Echo. Gotcha. Um, that came out via message traffic and probably via email for most people. Yeah. Uh, and that one, so responding to the 6522, uh, we adjusted a couple things with our fire EPs. Okay. So um, the biggest thing being for the engine fire in flight, uh, there's now a 60 second delay between the activation of the primary and the secondary fire bottles. Just in hopes that it, it puts the fire out. Um, yes. Uh, and a little bit, I guess the sensors in the engine compartment uh, don't necessarily uh, indicate that the fire is out at, until they've cooled down a little bit. And so I think the 60 second delay accounts for some of that as well. So it might just take a little while for them to actually indicate that the fire has been put out. Okay. That makes sense. Um, yeah. So we've gotten a few questions about that yeah. uh, from the fleet of like, Yes, if you happen to be over a runway, like we absolutely expect you to land, and now you are doing the fire on deck EP, and you get the heck out of there. Yeah, yeah. Don't be watching your wait. Watch for sixty <laughs> seconds to get that second bottle through. Yeah, no delay on the ground. Yeah, so. we changed uh, rotor brake usage too, right? So rotor brake usage uh, for the uh, high wind start is two minute limit now, okay. and that came out of the engine compartment temperature study that was done as part of the six five two two. So that uh, came out and said, basically, compartment temperatures were fine uh, when the rotor's turning during normal operation, mm-hmm. but they did find higher temperatures during rotor brake starts. So that's why we have a two-minute limit now instead gotcha. of five. Yeah, and, and somewhat related to the 2-2 the mishap, right, uh, and trying to emphasize this more, the aircraft can be started and s- sat on the ramp, all that kind of good stuff in a tailwind. There's, there's no issue with the 65 sitting in a tailwind. It's not going to catch fire on you. Um, so that, that has been corrected as well. So those changes. And then you also worked on another change, which I don't know where that change is now, but, uh, uh, a full update to the echo dash one, right? So that is still in the works. Um, okay. it's at, uh, ATC right now being routed through our chain of command, uh, getting ready to go to headquarters for promulgation. Awesome. And, uh, that is a big change. That's revision one to the echo flight manual. Nice. So revision one to the Delta never came out for the fleet. Wah, wah, wah. But revision one for the Echo is uh, incorporating a huge amount of that information that Delta Rev One was going to have. Oh yeah. So uh, a lot of those improvements were made, and then just things that we found that were incorrect with the manual or could be done better okay. through procedures, systems knowledge, things like that. Just over the course of having the Echo for a couple of years now. 
Yeah, and a lot of that stuff came from from you guys, the fleet, saying, hey, this needs to be changed. The CP isn't quite right. Hey, you guys should consider this, or this should be a possible symptom. And so thanks for um, the people that took the time to see that something wasn't quite right and, and let us know. Yeah, I appreciate you saying that, too, because if anybody's out there who sees something that's wrong, right, What was what's the form number again that you can? Uh, the uh, 847. Yeah. Uh, and so it's actually done online now. So you log into A-tip? Uh, ATIP. Okay. And it's done all electronically, which makes it a lot faster. Yeah. But I, I mean any really big substantive change that we made with the revision one, it seems like almost all of them came from the fleet. They yeah. were all, they're not like ATC driven. This is user feedback that came back. Yeah. So keep it coming. Definitely. Uh, and, and just let us know too, if you, you don't know where, the, how to get to ATIP or, you know, if you're not in a 65 and you're trying to make a change to the 60 manual, 144, what it, whatever it might be, uh, reach out to any of us here and, and we can point you in the right direction. So Thanks, Blake. Thanks for jumping on, man. Yeah, thanks for having me. All Thank right. goodness Blake was here because we would not have, fo- <laughs> we would have totally just fumbled through uh, that whole thing. I know, I know. <laughs> uh, well, Kenny, uh, with that, we've got a, a real exciting show ahead of us. We're kind of jumping outside of uh, Coast Guard-specific aviation, but we're staying in the aviation realm. And I know I have a lot of questions for this this gentleman, but uh, uh, we're talking to a air traffic controller, Derek Vento. Um, he had uh, his own podcast, Um traffic pattern. And uh, so he, he's had a lot of experience sitting on the other side of the uh, the scope, right? And so I'm excited to hear what he's got to say, especially how I screw up radio calls <laughs> all the time. So uh, without further ado, we'll get started. All right, Flight Suit Friday listeners, welcome. We got a special guest with us today, Derek Vento. He's a uh, podcaster just like ourselves and is an air traffic controller. So Derek, welcome to Flight Suit Friday, man. Honored you could be with us today. Thanks so much, guys. I uh, genuinely appreciate it. Yeah, I'm so stoked to be on the pod. Like I said, uh, usually I'm on the other side of the mic, so it's kind of cool to be the, uh, let me say this correctly, interviewee. Would that be correct? Yeah, Yeah. sounds right, dude. (laughs) Yeah, so before we got started, we were just kind of talking about how Work has been kicking our butt, so I think we need to start off. I, I'm drinking a beer here from uh, right here from Gulf Shores. It's called Area 251. It's a hazy IPA uh, by Big Beach Brewing Company. So, what's your alcohol percentage, dude? Uh, six point six. Yep. Yeah. In Derek, the- what wow. about you, man? What are wow. you drinking? Okay. <laughs> so, okay, if I knew we were going for the six point six, I would have went with the double IPA. That's for sure. <laughs> well, there's um, some, some you got to know. know about Kenny is he only does six percent or higher. Otherwise, they're a waste of time for him. So yeah, I hear you. It's like <laughs> drinking a Bud Light. I get it. Yeah. yeah no, I'm uh, I'm kind of on this. Now. Okay, so quick story. I'll make this quick. Sort of. Um, I've always been an IPA kind of guy, but. Um, funny enough, so when I turned 21, I'm going to throw back about nine years. Yes. My first beer I ever had illegally was a Miller Lite, I oh, want to say. Great beer. And I'm sitting at Applebee's with my parents, and they're like, what are you going to have? And I'm like, I'm going to have a <laughs> Sounds Miller Sounds like an awesome 21st birthday party, by the way. <laughs> 21st birthday, right? I know, I know, I know, I know. I, I got to hype this up a little bit, right? So I'm drinking this beer, and I'm just loving it. Whenever I met one of my buddies, and he's like, dude, try this thing called an IPA. And I'm like, I don't even know what that is, dude, but I'll give it a try. And I try it and I spit it out. It was <laughs> the, the worst thing I have ever tasted. It was it was just horrendous. It was worse than Brussels sprouts. It was all it was all. Oh yeah. So yeah, so my grandma ruined me on the Brussels sprouts. So uh, I, I, you know, another year or so went by. And I'm thinking like Miller Lights, amazing. I'm just crushing Miller Lights. You know, but by the way, this is an upgrade from Natty Light, you know, the college days, right? <laughs> so, so I'm crushing the lights, and one day I'm like, 
let me swing back around to this IPA thing. Well, I didn't know that all IPAs don't taste the same. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, so I give it a shot. And this is like when, like, breweries are, like, really starting to kind of, you know, come around. You know, everyone was like, I'm just going to start a brewery. And I tried this, this, this IPA. I had no clue what it was. And I fell in love. And I look back and I'm like, why was I drinking Miller Lite? It took me like six of those to even <laughs> feel a buzz. Still. Where dude, you have two IPAs and you're like, you're set. bad time, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But so, there, um, there's a time and place for a Miller Lite though. Yeah, hot, hot, day sure. the, hot day in the beach, you know, you're out, out in the lake. Sometimes you just can't take one of those heavy IPAs to the face. 100%. Yeah. 100%. <laughs> and um, I finally came around to this uh, sour kick. And um, I love like that sour taste. I guess that's the best way to explain it. And that's what I'm drinking tonight. I'm drinking this uh, sour, it's like this sort of raspberry sour um, called um, Kim Cut. I, guess, I think it's called Kim Cut. I think it's what it's called. Um, but uh, really, really good. Just It's just refreshing. I, I think what it does for me is it's not high on the alcohol percentage. It's just a refreshing sour. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I love it. I love it. You got a uh, favorite? Single, single cut. Yeah. yeah, you got a favorite brewery uh, around you in the New York City area? That's where you're at, right? New York City? Yeah, I'm in New York City now. It's kind of tough, to be honest. I'm going to throw it back and say Atlanta was probably my number one spot for breweries. Here okay. in New York, you know, they've got the Bronx Brewery. It's, it's in a pretty industrial area, not really an area I would want to kind of hang out in. And um, they've got a few other uh, places in Brooklyn. Um, there's one out here on Long Island where I live called Blue Point, really good. Mm-hmm. Um, out in, I think it's uh, Babylon, or I think it might be even Patchogue. But uh, for me, I think Atlanta was my go-to spot with breweries. Um New Realm Brewing Company right there, um, just off the belt line. Um, we've got a couple other good ones too. Of course, Sweetwater Brewing Company is there. Awesome beer. Oh yeah. But, uh, New York City here, it's more about trying to find a good bar and, uh, kind of just going from there. And usually most of the local breweries will just, you know, put their product in those places and you can kind of, kind of go all around the state of New York just by going to a bar. <laughs> That makes sense. Yeah, dude, that's awesome. Well, uh, we're, we're so stoked to have you. Can you, uh, just give us a little, uh, uh, background about yourself? Um, like what you do now and, and how you got there? Yeah. So right now I am a CPCIT. So that stands for certified professional controller in training. So what happens is, is when you first get into the agency, you uh, are, are just a trainee, you know, and then once you pass the academy, which we'll get into, I'm sure later on the academy, um, send you to your first facility, whether that be an in-route facility like a center or what uh, they would call a trade con, which is pretty much, you know, just approach control, departure, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And the other option would be a tower. And some of the facilities, because they're kind of like in more what I would call rural places, like my first facility, Columbia, South Carolina, it's what they call an up-down. So it's what they call like a, a tower trade con. So essentially, it's, they've got the tower uh, co-located with the trade con downstairs. Um, so they pretty much run the approaches and departures in and out of that major airport, mm-hmm. um, and the little surrounding satellites. Well, I, uh, a CPC, so I certified at my first facility in Columbia in, uh, I believe that was, uh, 20, maybe 15, 2016 or so. And, um, once you become a CPC, you can transfer really anywhere you want to go, mm-hmm. but there's kind of like a little bit of a twist to that. So New York Tracon and Chicago Tracon. Uh, of course, they're busy approach controls. They're you know some of the busiest in the country. Oh, yeah. But the complexity is also through the roof. Well, back in 2016, when I wanted to transfer to New York, they wouldn't allow me to because I didn't have the level of experience. They wanted controllers 
from what we call a level eight and above. So in the air traffic system, what happens is, is the facilities are rated four through 12, four being the lowest. Mm-hmm. Everything is based off of complexity and volume. So level four, for example, would be like Casper, Wyoming. Some guy named Jim probably works upstairs. He works, I think, like five airplanes a day, and he gets to go home at five o'clock because the tower shuts down early. Whereas level 12 would be New York, Tracon, Chicago approach, Atlanta, you name it. Well, I finally uh, got a chance to get up here, but it took a little bit. I um, didn't have the experience to get to New York. So my boss looked at me one day and he goes, dude, why don't you go to Atlanta? And I'm like, okay, that sounds kind of daunting. So I'll do it. (laughs) So I went down there in 2017, certified down there where I was also a CPC IT sort off. And then you become a CPC again, you get to drop the in-training portion. Mm -hmm. And then uh, fast forward to New York. I got here in uh, 2020 and uh, been in training for for a bit and uh, finally uh, have one more scope to go. I've got one scope left to certify on and then I'll be uh, a CPC all over again. Dang. And just to set the record now, I want your listeners to know this. I am done training. I am not transferring <laughs> again. I am not doing this again, ever, ever again. I'm done. Okay, mark mark the tapes, dude. We heard mark, it. Mark the, hey, man, that was actually one of my questions. What do you guys actually do when somebody says mark the tapes? Do you push a button up so there? Don't, uh, I don't think uh, anyone ever says mark the tapes, to be honest. Yeah, uh, you guys just roll just, your eyes. Like, oh, okay, guys. You just kind of, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. No, I think that might be more of a, uh, is that a Coast Guard thing? Uh, maybe. I, I have definitely heard of one pilot yell at a controller <laughs> to tell him to mark the tapes. <laughs> But oh, man. I don't know if that's a, a real thing or not. Okay, so um, you're you're in New York now. Um, what what like in English? Like, are you doing approach departure? Is it all the same? Do you rotate through that stuff? Um, yeah, help, it's a help great us understand. So essentially, what happens is when you get uh, to New York TradeCon, you get assigned one of the four areas. So here we have the JFK area responsible for JFK and Farmingdale. And uh, we also have the Islip area. Islip works Bridgeport. They work New Haven. They work the Hamptons. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're really busy throughout the summertime. And then usually during the wintertime, they kind of die down because, well, let's be honest, not many rich folks are going out to eastern Long Island during this time of year because it's so cold. Mm-hmm. Then you've got the Newark area, which is uh, myself, which is where I work. I work in the Newark area. So we work uh, Newark uh, arrivals and departures. Morristown arrivals and departures, same thing with Caldwell and one of the busiest I'm sure you know of, which is Teterboro. Yeah. And then you've got the LaGuardia area. LaGuardia only has one we call satellite, which would be Westchester, but they obviously work LaGuardia arrivals and departures as well. So the fourth area is really interesting. We they're almost like a little bit of a mini center. It's to be honest, where I think a lot of the heavy lifting gets done. But uh, they're called Liberty, and what they do is they're this little like sector that sits directly above all of those areas I just mentioned. And you got to think when LaGuardia has a departure, Newark has a departure, and JFK has a departure, and they're all sharing the same departure fix, well, you can't just let them all get to that one point at the same time. So you hand them off to this sector called Liberty. And so I climb my guy to 10, LaGuardia climbs their guy to 15, JFK climbs their guy to 17. And Liberty takes all three of those guys. <laughs> yeah, good luck. Your problem, them. Liberty. Yeah, you're like, see you later. That's all I got to do. I'm done. So, those guys, like, they get hammered. It's, I, like I said, like, we have have so many stories we can talk about today. But uh, those guys just get beat up so bad. 
Um, and it's again during those departure push days. So for example, you know, take Thanksgiving. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Prayers to those guys, you know, yeah. they just get uh, beat up, especially when there's in trails and, and whatnot, but we don't really, um, rotate to any other areas to answer your question. Essentially it's like I walk into work today, I get my pre duty weather briefing and like I look at the weather and I go, Oh wow, it's going to be hard IFR today. It's going to be one of those rough days. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I may start off working the 22 final. So essentially I'm working arrivals coming in from the, you know, the Atlantic and, uh, they're being sequenced in by Boston center and our feeder controller. And I'm telling Lufthansa and Delta and spirit and jazz and all those airlines, Turn right, turn left, descend, maintain the speed, hold that to the marker, contact New York Tower, have a good day. And then I may go on break and I come back and my supervisor's like, hey, I need you to work departure. So I go down to the end and I'm ready to get this control off position. And I'm working departures off of Morristown, Newark, Teterboro, and you're sequencing those airplanes. And then I, I get a break and I go take my lunch and I come back and he may say, hey, I need you to work the feed. So there's so much information that you have to take in. And as you can see, as I'm explaining this, it's exactly why the training process is as long as it is. Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And it sounds like it's one of those things where like, if you get behind, you can't just say, okay, everyone stop, right? Like you, you still moving. have to do damage control and like, you got to yeah. do the best that you can, you know, um, just to, yeah. for us to get an idea, like um, whatever the busiest airport is there, like how many airplanes are coming in and out of there and say like an hour? Yeah, so Newark, pretty much, we depart off one and we land on one. Uh, they're parallel runways. They're only separated by 750 feet. So on a day like today, because I have to be uh, sort of specific with this answer, mm-hmm. everything is based on what we call the AAR in air traffic control, the airport arrival rate. Remember, there's a thing called system demand and system capacity, right? So, for example, let's say, you know, uh, Five hundred planes want to take off and land at LaGuardia between two p.m. and three p.m. Well, the system recognizes that and goes, "Whoa, whoa, 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 whoa!" Yeah, we have to delay these airplanes because the airport can only handle X, Y, Z amount of planes within that hour, based off of the weather conditions. That could be due to low ceilings. That could be due to wind. So today, for example, you're talking ceiling three hundred overcast, two mile visibility mist. You know, it's, it's one of those days where the operation is going to run a little bit slower. Right. The reason being is, is because of the separation standards mm-hmm. that we have to apply. So let's say, for example, I'm working the Coast Guard Gulfstream, which you can only imagine how beautiful those are, by the way. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I'm, I'm sequencing them behind a Boeing 737. Well, the Gulfstream 5 in our terminology is just another category F. The 737 is a category F. And that's what we call wake turbulence recap. So essentially, I just need three miles directly behind this airplane. But the thing is, is that the tower, considering that I just said the ceiling is 300 overcast, cannot see these airplanes out the window. So they can't provide what they call visual separation. That's Mm -hmm. essentially when what happens is, is this. 737 gets cleared for an approach, flying down the final. And I tell them, United 701, maintaining 189 to five miles out, contact New York Tower 118.3. <laughs> and here comes this Coast Guard Gulfstream, and I put him five miles directly behind that 737. Well, I tell the Coast Guard, Coast Guard 60121, to five miles out, contact New York Tower 118.3. Well, the 737 has a V-Rev speed, let's say about 140 knots. So while he slows to his final approach speed, the Coast Guard G5 is still doing 180 knots to the marker. 
that's what we call compression on the final. Yep. So as the first one's coming in to land, the second one comes in, you know, this Coast Guard Gulfstream, and the separation cannot go down to less than two and a half miles all the way to the threshold because when it's overcast at 300 feet, we have to maintain some sort of safety. On a day where it's beautiful, clear VMC, if I bust two and a half miles, assuming that there is no weight turbulent separation like they're following a triple seven mm-hmm. where you have to have, let's say, five miles, the tower controller is looking out the window saying, through inference, through assumption, they are providing visual separation so those airplanes can get closer. It's the same thing when one is going to depart and one is coming into land. Today, for example, you get a go around and now all of a sudden you've got an air show. Oh, yeah. One just departed, one goes around. Now you've got an air show. They're in the clouds. No one can see them. <laughs> Not good. So to protect for that go around, we have to have what we call a separation standard. Two miles increasing to three within one minute of departure. So God forbid if the guy that's on the final goes, hey, man, we've got a gear issue. we got to go around. we got to break out. The first one's two miles off the departure end separated from that airplane. So I say all of that to say, how many airplanes can you land in an hour? Well, normally on a clear VMC day, we can land 40. We can depart more than 40 in an hour, no issue whatsoever. Wow. A day like today, you're probably landing close to maybe, let's say, 25, 30 an hour at most. And even though it doesn't sound like a lot, by like reducing it down to 10, 10 less planes, you're talking about getting extra departures out, and you're talking about increasing the separation standards between each arrival yeah. so everybody can get on the ground. So Does every, that make sense? Yeah, probably everything slows down as a result too. Everything you know, slows. The delays and uh, that just made me think of something. So Kenny and I both flew together in San Francisco before we were down here in Mobile and um, quite often coming into the Class Bravo, they'd call some uh, aircraft out coming in on a final and uh, our ramp was <clears throat> pretty close to one of the approach ends of one of the runways. And uh, so we would just say, you know, insight, we'll maintain visual separation and the tower controller right. say, you know, that's approved. And I remember... Uh, pretty distinctly, like there was one aircraft they called a super heavy, which, um, what was right. that? That was the Airbus A3 something. The 380. I'm just going to kind of trail A380. off. And, yeah. I'm not, I'm going to, I'm really bad at playing uh, numbers <laughs> and names, but anyways, <laughs> you know, like, and I said, oh yeah, we'll maintain visual separation. And they're like negative denied or mm-hmm. something like that. Is that, can you not maintain uh, visual separation from something that requires a certain distance You're for not, yeah, brake so turbulence or something? Super. Yeah, the super is the only category where you're not allowed to use the visual separation. You have to have, at least from R and as a controller, you know, you can't say to a Coast Guard, you know, G5 or, you know, at 737, you can't say traffic one o'clock, seven miles southbound, a heavy, you know, sorry, super A380 at 3000 descending. Mm-hmm. And they say, Roger, insight. Maintain visual sight. You can't, you have to have the appropriate mileage. That's the only airplane, I think, to this date that the, um, FA has pretty much said, hey, listen, like, you've got to have the required separation. I believe it was years ago. I want to say the, the most popular story or instance that I've heard of was a citation was following behind a Super A380, and I believe it rolled inverted and got waked up really bad. So, what? You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Holy yeah. cow. Yeah, yeah. So, like, I think, you know, in my humble opinion, since I've only been in the agency, this is about eight years, almost nine, 
I've noticed that there is a greater emphasis on wake turbulence. We've learned so much about these airplanes over the last, the last 10 years. You got to think, you know, think about the heavy jet aircraft that you guys know of, right? 7-4 most popular, right? 777 most popular, 7-6 most popular. All of a sudden, there was this Dreamliner and this A350. And we started learning more about these A321neos and the wings with winglets. And, you know, we're, we're learning so much about how wake turbulence affects airplanes behind mm-hmm. uh, in flight. And I think as we've gathered more information, which is a great, great thing, we've um, introduced uh, correct safety measures to provide separation standards, you know, for these airplanes. So you, you talk to a pilot all the time and they'll say like, hey, I noticed the other day we were three miles behind a 7.5. Don't get me wrong, it's legal, but if you can always provide a little extra room behind a 7.57, which everyone knows, that it'll put out some wake. You try to do that for these pilots, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're actually kind of leading me into this question that I was thinking about. Um, it's kind of a loaded question in that, um, you know, we all have these anecdotal stories where our air traffic control is like, well, I understand, like, the three guys before you just did it and the pilots are like, well, right. the air traffic controller let me do this last time, you know. Mm-hmm. Are there certain um, restrictions that are just for certain areas or local procedures that you guys are required to follow? Or is it kind of just FAA across the board, across the U.S.? I guess I would say is this, that there are always hard and steadfast rules. But I think that from my experience in air traffic, I've noticed so far that each facility has their What's the best way I could say this? Their own isms. Does that yeah. make sense? It's yeah. like yeah, every for sure. system, It's like yeah. It's like you know, you, you come into Teterboro, and you just start slowing down on your own. It's like, um, Falcon Seven Alpha Charlie, did you slow? <laughs> yeah. Get, and then you, you know, you can moving. kind of be sarcastic, <laughs> and you can kind of say, "Well, who told you to do that?" You know what I mean? And they'll go, "Oh, uh, we're going back to two fifty. I'm like, <laughs> "Thank you." You know what I mean? Like instead of like, I could totally just say to this guy. Stopping seven alpha Charlie, maintain two five zero knots, please. Yeah, but it's like I'm trying to sort of educate this pilot and say your last assigned speed was two hundred and fifty knots. So why do you think you would be okay to slow down now, mm-hmm. especially when you hear me rattling transmissions off on the frequency, knowing that someone's probably behind you? But if you fly, let's say into, I'm going to make a facility up. I don't know South Bend, Indiana, and they slow controllers are like yeah be your discretion yeah. and it's like that don't work here in new mm-hmm. york that doesn't work here you know you can't you know you're not flying into you know columbia south carolina where it's like you know you get a little push here and there and it's like yeah do what you want when you want you know it's just it's very hard to explain because i read a lot of forms with pilots and reddit reddit's a rabbit hole by the way oh yeah and you know you get on there and you'll see a pilot say hey i have this one thing that happened here why can't i do that you know, a, a lot of times the explanation can simply be one day you came in on a Tuesday and the controller was in a terrible mood. Thursday you might have come back and it was a different controller, different set of days off, different set of crew. And, you know, we run things a little bit different. You know, it's so hard to give you a hard defined black and white answer. Does that, you know what I mean? This is, oh, yeah, ab- it's very absolutely. difficult sometimes. And it's fitting that uh, that you guys go quick there, too, because New York City is just a fast paced city to begin with. So air traffic must be the yeah. same way. Awesome. Yeah, I would say for the most part, it's just, don't get me wrong, when there's no volume and it's light, I'll tell a pilot all day long, hey, speed is yours. You know, I'm a huge fan of saying that speed is yours. You know, it's, you want to sort of 200 knots, you want to sort of 190, I don't mind at all. But just understand that, you know, it, you're not really helping yourself out nor your fellow, you know, 
pilot friends, you know, as they fly in as well. I mean, everyone wants to get in. We under, we understand that, but we're literally sequencing airplanes off their speed. Yeah. It's like, for example, every now and then we'll work like a medevac helicopter if it's IFR. Well, hey, like just because you're flying, you know, BK-117 and you can do 60 knots, that doesn't really help me out. I would like for you to do at least 120 or better, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. I've Yeah, I've always tell myself, like, do not get into argument on the radio because nothing good is going to come of it. But there was one. I actually agree with that. There yeah. was one time I, I did make an exception. I just couldn't help myself. It was, uh, I'm trying to remember the tower. It was out in like <laughs> Burbank area. Oh no. Uh, Disneyland. What's the one out? Fullerton. Fullerton. I was in Fullerton. Okay. And this is a small class Delta. And we were at the like general aviation ramp and it was like, Hey, we'd like to taxi, you know, out VFR departure to the, to the East. And it's like, yeah, Coast Guard copter, you know, taxi to runway three, five at Bravo via Charlie. Okay. Taxi Bravo via Charlie. And I was like, okay, parking brakes off, nose gears unlocked. And he's like, Hey, did I just give you a clearance to taxi? And I was like, yes, sir. He's like, well, you either need to move or we're going to cancel your, you know, taxi clearance. And I was like, I was what? the only aircraft in the entire airspace. So I was just like, <laughs> yeah, of course. Come on, man. Like, but like you were saying, that guy probably just had a bad day, right? Yeah. You know, like he just yeah, it, needed it, to be grumpy yeah. and took it out on me. Yep. Mm-hmm. And that's what it is, is in that very moment, it's like, you know, controllers have this thing about them where they want control, you know, it's, you know, and I think the longer that some of these guys do this job, I think some still can be very passionate. And I think some, Maybe just to be very burnt out, you know, and you throw in a mix of burnout, you work six day work weeks and then maybe you've got a tough home life, you know, I, it, it could be just tough, you know, and, yeah. you know, the only way that they can really let out anything is maybe at work. I, I don't know. I'm just assuming here, but yeah, well, you I got- have a blast when I go in, man. I, That's awesome. I just, I love it, man. I love everyone jokes. They, they always tease me up there. You're like a, a pilot controller, you know, and I'm like, yeah, you're always on the pilot side. And I'm like, uh, <laughs> yeah, buddy. I'm like, I, I just, I just hate when, you know, like a controller makes a transmission. You know, so like, Delta 1421, turn right, 060. <laughs> and, you know, pilot Delta 1421, they'll say, hey, 060. Now, mind you, from my knowledge of my dad being a pilot, and I know what you guys do behind the scenes, you guys are using that CRM and you're saying 060 out loud to one another, right? And you're yeah. going up to the NCP, or you're changing the heading knob, right? Or you're flying the airplane helicopter, right? And then the controller doesn't think about that. So they'll go back and they'll say, no, 1421, the center maintain 4,000. And they don't hear anything. And they're like, no, 1421, the center 4,000. <laughs> like, okay, down to 4,000. Like, you give us a second, man. <laughs> right, but you have to remember, in air traffic, we're taught to combine our transmissions. As okay. a pilot, you're not expecting me to say, turn right 060. You say it out loud to each other and all of a sudden come back because you're you're talking to each other for that half second. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, crap, was that our call sign again? Are they calling us? Do they want us to descend too? Mm-hmm. It's like, no, the controller should have said, turn in 060 to send them 18, 4,000. Mm-hmm. And you say, 060, 4,000. All right, 060, 4,000, check. And then you guys move on. Not yeah. 060, 4,000. It's like, wait, what's And it's like, and then the controller gets mad because you guys didn't hear it. I'm like, you guys got to stop doing that, man. Like, these guys are flying an airplane, you know? And, and a lot of times, I think controllers just think, like, you guys are just solely listening to the frequency and nothing else is happening, like robots. And I'm like, it doesn't work that way, especially with these commercial carriers. They're telling the flight attendants to prepare the cabin for arrival. 
they're briefing the approaches. You know, it's like there, there's so much going on. Yeah. Seatbelt signs on, yada yada yada. Slowing the airplane down. It's I mean, that's why they tell you. You know, it's like you got to be patient with these pilots. Well, you've got a lot going on too. I mean, how many aircraft are you handling uh, in your headset or on your scope at one time? Yeah, if you're working departure and you've got six airplanes on your frequency, you've got a good amount going on. You know what yeah. I mean? Like one departs, another departs. You've got six airplanes on departure on your frequency. And don't forget, we're talking various aircraft types, and one of them is a Bonanza. I'm, 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 I'm probably a little bit busy at that point because you're trying to get the Bonanza climbed out above the airspace. You're trying to get them in a good spot to climb. You know, the wind could be, let's say, for example, out of the south. And if this airplane's on a northbound heading, well, we know a tailwind is not helping the climb. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times you might try to leave this airplane into the wind a little bit longer, but you can't leave them on the heading too long because there's another airplane there. You want to turn them out of the way. Or let's say, for example, you get a pile that just dogs their climb and it's a heavy jet. And, you know, of course, here comes, for example, Air India. or Here comes, you know, Lufthansa. These, these airplanes are, you know, so heavy. And they come off the end, and their turns are very, very wide. And a lot of it, too, is they'll come off the departure, and they'll say, this is my best German action, by the way. Uh, New York departure, Lufthansa, 424, Fox uh, 1.2.2, climb uh, 2.5, you know. <laughs> and they'll come off the departure, end, and you're like, turn right hitting 040, climb maintain 6,000. And they'll say, uh, 040, request high-speed climb. And when they request high-speed climb, they're asking you, can we bust 250 knots? We have to go faster. Mm-hmm. Well, as you guys probably know this, when you're climbing for speed, what happens to your rate of climb? It's not that great. Mm-hmm. So like I said, they're, they're, they're trying to accelerate to 265, 270 knots. The rate of climb might be 1,000 feet a minute. And the problem is, is I'm sequencing another aircraft and their climb based off what Lufthansa is doing. So if I get stuck low and another departure comes off the runway end, now I'm in bad shape. It's like so a it's like constant sort of, puzzle. Correct, correct. So the problem is is you're always sort of trying to find what we call clean air. You're looking for like open space. You don't necessarily always vector a departure for where they need to be going. You vector them for open air space and then get them going to where they need to go. Does that, you know what I mean? Does that mm-hmm. make kind of like sense? It's like, I would love to vector this airplane on a 240 heading, but Lufthansa's on a 060. I don't want to pass beneath them. So let me go to a 300 heading, climb to 10,000 feet, and eventually I'll go back to a 220. Mm-hmm. You're always trying to find out when you have high volume and high complexity. But when you're working, let's say, the final at Newark, you may have 11 airplanes on your frequency, and 11 is kind of busy. I mean, that's... You're yes. talking every airplane needs a turn, every airplane needs a slow, every airplane needs a PTAC, and you're always putting out fires. See, I, I, and this is my personal opinion, I promise I won't rant here, is that I think the air traffic system works very well when everyone does their job. Mm-hmm. When everyone does their job, when everyone knows how to actually fly their airplane, as crazy as that sounds, everything works out very, very well. The moment someone departs off on the wrong squat code, the moment someone checks in on the wrong frequency, the moment someone goes Nordo, you're having to put out this fire and you already have enough going on Mm -hmm. where you're thinking to yourself, man, I hope everyone gets this correct. As soon as one airplane goes, Coach, we got a flat issue. We got to come out of the sequence. (laughs) Oh, shit. Now you're like, okay, this airplane turn right, you turn right, you go left. 
Okay, UPS choose your weight. How much time do you need? We don't know. Okay, soup, I need you to come over here real quick. What do you got going on? UPS choose your weight, for example. Uh, Flatfish, she says you got to come out of the sequence. Okay, can you coordinate with the satellite controllers for me? Yeah, okay. Uh, hey, hey, how do you want them? Uh, 350 head and give them to me at 4,000. All right, here he comes. You know, like you're doing all these things behind the scene and you're shouting at each other because it's like, dude, I've still got airplanes to clear and turn and clear and turn. And UPS just goes, hey, we got to come out of the sequence. It's like, oh, here we go. Tight. You know? And then UPS says, hey, we're ready to come back in. And you're like, I don't have a hole for him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Penalty box, buddy. Yeah, you're doing, <laughs> you're doing laps in the penalty box for a while. So that, uh, I got to ask, like we as pilots try to, you know, maximize simulation and stuff. Do you guys have simulators to mimic that stress um, or is it all on the job training? Yeah. So at my first facility, that was a level six. Of course, you know, we didn't have any labs. We just, you go right from uh, working the tower, you work ground, you work local, which is like right on the job. Mm -hmm. Uh, Pretty much uh, you take your academy knowledge and then you get a trainer to train you on the position. And then they send you out to like a radar academy school in Oklahoma. You come back, you learn all the maps in the airspace and all that other good stuff. And you're working live traffic right at Columbia. I mean, you're talking to your first Delta Mad Dog or your first Delta, you know, Boeing 717, and you're 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 working. When you get to the busier facilities, you know, you get to the eights, the nines, the tens, and elevens, and twelves. They all have tower simulators. They all have radar simulators. You actually have to go through a graded portion and actually get out of the lab before you hit the floor and work live traffic. If you do not pass the labs, you will not come to the floor and talk to real airplanes. Mm, gotcha. Do you have any good uh, sea stories or some shift that you just remember just being just one from hell? Or one that was great? Like, um, yeah. yeah, I would say just about every week there's always one shift that just is like <laughs> killer. You know, you're like, what is happening right now? You know, <laughs> um, I could go down a list with you right now. Um, oh man, where do I begin? Uh, medical emergency. Uh, that, that seems to always happen, you know, whether it's on your shift or someone else's shift, but, uh, medical emergencies, uh, always seem to be one of them. Uh, we actually had, I'm going to botch the story a little bit so it doesn't give out too much of the real information, but, uh, we had a, uh, American airlines jet, uh, come in a few weeks ago. Uh, from the south, and uh, <laughs> they call ahead of time, and they're like, "Hey, we've got a forty-five-year-old uh, female on board. Uh, she just had some sort of surgery done, I guess, earlier in the week." And they're like, "She's unresponsive, slow pulse, unconscious." And you're like, "Great, here we go." And you know, you're talking again in the middle of a push, and you literally have to move airplanes out of the way to get that, air, you know, that airplane on the ground. I will say the coolest thing about it, though, is when you tell that seven thirty-seven or a three twenty-one speed is yours it's the coolest thing seeing that airplane who normally is restricted to 250 knots mm-hmm. doing 340 miles per hour over the ground at 5,000 feet Heck it's the yeah. coolest thing <laughs> Send it's it. like you're like american what are you doing again indicated or like 290 you're like okay full send you know <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, they're just letting it rip and i'm like man bravo zulu dude you know <laughs> <laughs> but it's pretty cool um i would say uh uh, one of the craziest shifts I've ever had, though, was probably um, in Atlanta. Um, this was like probably like two and a half years ago, and um, it was uh, for a Southwest seven thirty seven that was up. Uh, I don't know, probably I don't know. I was supposed to hit the hit the airspace boundary a few minutes after I was supposed to get off out of position, and um, 
my boss calls me back in and like, there's like this kind of this funny joke where I don't know if you guys have ever done this, but have you ever had like someone get ready to leave a room and you call their name, hoping they'll turn around just to say like, Hey man, like enjoy your break. So like, yeah. like we have nothing we actually want to tell them. So I'm getting ready to leave the room and someone's like, Hey, Bento, Bento. I'm like, Nope, not falling for it. Not turning around. <laughs> turn around. Yeah. Not turning around. And I'm like, no, seriously. I'm like, what's up? You know? Cause usually they'll just be like, Oh, enjoy your break. I'm like, yeah, real funny. <laughs> so I go back in the room and, um, they're like, Hey, we got this Southwest uh, jet inbound from the Southeast, about 50 miles out. And we got CPR in progress. Uh, there's a, there's a passenger in the aisle right now, you know, CPR in progress. I'm like, Oh shit. Yeah. All right. So I plug in and, um, I open up uh, one of the positions. And, um, um, I thought it was the coolest thing how, uh, one of my colleagues to my left, I'll never forget this. He's training another controller and he just like looks at me, like gives me a nod and I'm like, Oh, he knows what's going on. Like this guy's with it. And, you know, remind you like at Atlanta, you're landing three runways at one time. So there's a lot of airplanes in a small area. And you can't just go direct to the airport to send the 3,000 feet and tell them to rip it and say goodbye. Mm -hmm. You have to sort of like slowly descend uh, and step down. Well, from the west, these airplanes come in at 12,000 feet and they have to get all the way down to three. And I thought it was the coolest thing how even though southwest was on a different frequency than American, the controller to my left tops on the frequency and says, American 721, I'm just going to be quite honest with you. There's the Southwest 737, 10 southeast of you, and their turn to the final right now is dependent on you getting down. And Americans are like, does 3,500 feet a minute work for you? Dang. And I'm like, holy smokes. American just dumps it from 12,000 all the way down to 3,500 feet. Some of those passengers like, go like up in their seatbelt in the back. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. And I'm like, man, this is awesome, dude. This yeah. is just so cool. That Southwest jet, I'm like traffic 11 o'clock, four and a half, making northwest bound turns and A321, vacating five for three. You got it in sight. It's like, yep. I'm like, Roger, targeting 300, maintain visual separation with that traffic, advising you have the airport in sight. He's like, Roger, making the turn. You got him in sight. We'll stay with him. He's like, got the airport in sight. I'm like, all right, Southwest, clear visual approach. I'm like, two seven left. Speed is yours. Near, and kind of like Atlanta Tower, 19.3. Have a great day. And it's like, you know, it's a shortened version of the story, but it's like so cool to know that when everyone is on the same page, mm -hmm. like something can really be accomplished, yeah, you I know? And it, I love the fact that we don't know what happens to that passenger. Like, I don't want to know, mm -hmm. but all I know is in that moment, you give them the best shot at life. You know what I mean? You give them, you give them the best shot to live. It's like, you guys know this, the golden hour. You guys know what it's like. It's like, pick them up. Let's get rolling. You know, let's get them to, an advanced level of care right now so this person can hopefully live, you know, it's, yeah. it's the coolest thing. I love it. I mean, you're really highlighting uh, the importance of CRM, like not, o not only in the aircraft, but between aircraft yeah. uh, and ATC, uh, because right. you've got the Southwest, the American, two different controllers talking to both them and all yeah. working as a team to make that happen. It's, it's really awesome. And, that, 100%. you know, communication 100%. is kind of number one right there. Uh, that's all we got. It with really you guys. is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I guess what it is too for me is I am a dork about aviation. I'm a dork about planes. And I know that for as many days as you've seen things that don't go well, 
you know, I told this story I put on my Instagram about, like I said, two years ago. And I said, the coolest thing about being a controller is that nine times out of 10, no matter what setting you're in, you're at a barbecue, a bonfire, you're at some gala, the air traffic controller usually always holds the room. The pilot usually will always hold the room. It's not many people know pilots. They don't know controllers. They know doctors. They know dentists. They mm-hmm. know people in business. What do you do? But you walk in a room and say, yeah, I fly to the United States Coast Guard. Whoa. It's like, do you fly? Yeah, I fly Dolphin. Oh, you fly, Jet fly Jayhawk. It's like people want to talk to you. So for as many times as you go out of that gate at the end of the night and you're like, wow, like that shift was wild. The best thing I will say that I've appreciated in this entire job is my living situation. I do not live closer than five minutes I'm sorry, the way I want to say this is I don't live any closer than 15 minutes from work because mm-hmm. in those 15 minutes, I get to just breathe and decompress in the car. Mm-hmm. I listen to Spotify for a hot minute and I just get to reflect back on the day and think to myself like, wow, we worked all those airplanes and it's like the most uh, uh, rewarding feeling ever. It's like you guys, you know, you guys go out on missions or training exercises and you go out and you pick someone up off a vessel and you come back, and in the moment, you 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 do your job. You just do your job. When you come back, you think to yourself, like, that shit was pretty crazy today. Yeah. <laughs> it's like... It really is. Like, you, you just get caught up in that moment, surrounded by mm-hmm. your peers who are, you know, working um, just as hard and doing awesome things, and you kind of sure. get numb to it a little bit. And then every once in a while, right. um, you step back and go, holy crap, like, that was amazing what, what happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah, remember yeah. remember why you did it too, right? You, need, you sometimes 100%. need those days to remind you. Um, yeah, and I guess I would ask almost you guys too. Isn't it, isn't it a pretty cool feeling like when you work with that group of guys and you just know like everything's going to be okay? You know, mm-hmm. it's it's pretty cool. Like you work with a certain group of people on shift, and you look to your left and right, and I'm like, dude, we could go down to shitter together right now, and I'm okay with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, know, you just know that whatever hits the fan, like. I'm working next to Tim. I'm working next to Mike. <clears throat> Let it rip. Throw it at me. I'm ready. You yeah, know? I, I actually love, you know, you, you go back and look at, you know, mishaps and they got animation and, and voice recordings and stuff. And uh, especially when pilots are, you know, facing death sometimes and they're making yeah. jokes and laughing. Uh, you know, they catch that little break and they're they're making a joke about it. And you're like, dude, that's camaraderie right there. Oh, you yeah. know, like, I hey, agree. we might die, but we're going to get a, the quick last laugh in here. <laughs> We have some rough days on shift. I would say probably my worst day ever, ever in air traffic so far was probably beginning of February 2020 and I had my first crash. That was probably one of my my saddest moments in air traffic control because, you know, I was just one of three controllers that talked to these people Mm -hmm. and to know that, you know, they were just there and now they're gone. that's, That's tough. That was my first ever accident I've ever experienced and been a part of. And, you know, that definitely changes you because I remember coming home that night and you don't realize like how you know unforgiving aviation is. But I guess what hits me to the core, I don't think I've ever really spoke about this to this day, but I guess I'll put it out there now, is sometimes like I just ask myself, I'm like, why? You know what I mean? Like not as in why did this happen to me and my coworkers. I mean as in like I can't begin to tell you guys how many times I come home after working planes, especially that day, and ask myself why did you even take off? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I can't even begin to ask 
the amount of questions I have and like about why, um, like, why are we even talking to this pilot right now? Like they're in really bad trouble. Like they're in bad shape right now. And you feel like every transmission is so important of what you say because it's being recorded and you know this could end up on YouTube. It could end up in a court document somewhere. It's it's going to go out there and someone's family member might hear this. And since then, I will say that, you know, I've grown, you know, I've, I've definitely grown as a controller. And I remember probably, oh, three months ago, I had a um, helicopter at 8,000 feet just doing an overflight. And uh, he suddenly gets on a frequency and he just says, New York, we want to go to Mike Mike uniform. And I'm like, I'm lost. I'm like, your destination is like Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. What are you talking about? And he goes, okay, approach, we're descending. I'm like, I'm like, you're, I'm like, what do you mean you're descending? You're not VFR. You know, I was like 19, 8,000. And he just keeps at the frequency and he goes, approach, we're losing our engine. And I'm like, immediately Ooh. you get that flashback, right? It's like a, it's like this weird sort of like your gut starts churning because you know, here we go. Like this could, this could be it for, for this pilot. Yeah. And I just asked him, I said, well, you know, I said, are you able to maintain 3000? He goes, yeah, we're starting down now, but you got to think, and, and you guys could probably educate me on this. I would assume as a helicopter pilot, if you're starting to lose your engine and you're diverting to an airport a few miles away, there's probably like some sort of, correct me if I'm wrong, there's some sort of like balance between needing altitude to make it to where you want to go, but also realizing that if you don't make it, I need to be lower to auto-rotate and not slam into the ground. Am I thinking along the right path here? Yeah, so I think I think what he's probably getting at is like, hey, I haven't lost my engine yet. I need to start coming down so that hopefully I can go land in a baseball field, right? Mm-hmm. Ideally, okay. like, hey, let, let me get on the ground before this becomes an actual auto um, versus like, you know, hey, if I do, you know, lose an engine, maybe I do want to be a little bit higher for, for an auto, but I think, I think the other thing is just get out of the clouds as soon as you can. That's yeah. Right. That's probably the big one for me, at least if I had something, Hey, that, what's your minimum vector and altitude and can I have it immediately? Thank you. Kind of thing. Yeah. Most helicopter pilots, yeah, um, I would say probably try to avoid IMC IFR in, in general. I would say that's a safe statement. Uh, we feel better when we can see things. Um, but yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And, uh, and that's I, so interesting. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought this up because I was actually kind of thinking of, about it and you basically kind of answered my question. But in the Coast Guard aviation, we highly value um, reviewing mishaps. And part of that aviation culture is understanding like what happened, why did that pilot take off? And we're extremely willing to share our mistakes, whether it's a, a small one or a, a big one. So that hopefully right. no one makes the same dumb mistake I did. Mm-hmm. Do you guys have that same type of culture in um, at, at ATC to be like, hey, I, I made a big mistake, and, and luckily it was you know VFR and it it didn't. But man, if if this was one of those three hundred and one misty days, like that could have been a you know a midair. Yeah, yeah. So I would say the first thing is if there's fault on our end, we have a thing called um, ATSAP. And uh, forgive me for not knowing the acronym or what it stands for off the top of my head, but it's, essentially it's a reporting system 
um, that goes to what we call the ERC event review committee. And um, they'll review this event sample um, and uh, it, it pretty much educates um, uh, the mass on a, on a, on a greater level. Like for example, let's say I had an uh, incident with opposite direction between the arrival and a, a departure. And, um, I, I realized like, Oh wow, this was, this was bad. Uh, I can add that it, someone can review it, um, and we can learn from it. So essentially it's, it doesn't just have to be an in-house thing, but there could be a CBI, right? A computer-based instruction or computer-based training, CBT that could be created and developed, uh, which we do like monthly. We do CBTs monthly. So there's nice. always, you know, I used to be a fireman, so I'm not sure if you guys know this term, but CEUs, continuing education units, right? Yep. Uh, so CEUs, it, it's a pretty much just a way to stay current. So besides just, you know, once you're certified, you're kind of certified. So, you know, you're always learning on the job, but in reference to a specific event, um, it's pretty cool. You could actually be learning from a, an event that happened that they from someone in California. And even though uh, the sector is completely different and, and the operation is different than what you do in New York, um, it does keep you on your toes. I, I would wholeheartedly say, and this is my opinion, and I think a lot of controllers would agree with me, is that this job just humbles you like on a daily basis. Yeah. Just when you think you, don't get me wrong, the coolest thing that I was ever told, I was 21 years old, I walked in to Columbia Air Traffic Control Tower and met the air traffic manager. I remember this like it was yesterday. And he said, Derek, I'm going to give you one piece of advice and I never want you to forget this. And I said, okay, what's up? And he goes, when you walk into that tray con, when you walk into that reader room, you better have some swagger. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, you should want to feel like you own that frequency because when you're there in position, you do. He goes, you should feel confident in yourself. But, always be humble. And I'm like, Oh shit. Like this is interesting advice. Like <laughs> go in there and rock it, go in there and crush it. Yeah. But just know you're never out of the game to a point where you can't be a victim of a deal. You know, what we call an operational error, you know, having two and two, you know, hopefully not, uh, what do we call it? Transfer paint. You know, is what we say. You don't want them transferring the paint. Yeah. So, um, it's very unique. And, and I'll hit on one last point that I think is so interesting too. Because as we talk about CRM, we talk about, uh, maybe I'm just a dork about this, but I want you guys to sort of elaborate on this and think about the path I'm, I'm trying to take this. But the other day I was working with Dash, he had a new probably about two weeks ago. And um, I am a dork and, I'll, and I wish I could play the noise for you. I might actually be able to play it for you right now so you guys can hear it. Yeah. I don't know if you guys are familiar with certain sounds, but I know, for example, the sound that the autopilot makes when it disconnects in an Airbus. It's the coolest sound ever, right? Mm -hmm. So when you're like flying in an airplane, sometimes like depending on where you're sitting, like humble brag, but I sit in first class a lot. I'm a little bougie. <laughs> no but deal. like on, fin on final approach, you know, coming in the land, you can always sometimes hear from the cockpit through the door. You hear that little, and you're like, oh, they disconnected the autopilot. Like, okay, cool. This is cool. Well, <laughs> I am a fan of always using my ears to tell me different things. So I'm at work working at Dash 8 the other day, and I told him, I said, 4 to 121, flight in 360, climb 18, 10,000. And he says, 360 heading, climb to 10,000. And I go back and I say, 4 to 121, climb 340. And as he keys up the mic, I hear bells and whistles. Now, mind you, dude, I talk to Hawker Jets, I talk to Gulfstreams. 
I'm very familiar when with a lot of these sounds, I would say, and I feel like when you hear something that just doesn't sound right, you sort of like, wait a minute. Mm-hmm. Quarter 121, you guys okay? Uh, Canadian accent, by the way. Uh, actually, you hear that? Yeah. As soon as I hear, uh, <laughs> oh, like, yeah. I knew it. Yep. Something was wrong. And he says, actually, we need to level off at 6,000. And I'm like, I knew it. So my quarter 121, Roger, amend your altitude, maintain 6,000, turn right in 070. As soon as I do that, I go right to local and I'm like, stop departures. That's the last thing I need. More airplanes on my frequency. Stop departures. I've already got five on my frequency and Porter might have an emergency. Let's sort this out. But it's the craziest thing how just, just by just caring, by just caring about your job and, and just listening for an extra second, you know, I'm used to hearing a voice and maybe some background noise. You know, it's like you hear a 757 old United come off the runway end. They have the worst radios ever because United has some of the old Continental 757s from years ago. I expect to hear that Rolls Royce, you know, I expect to hear that. But when I hear like, bing, bang, bomb, and I'm like, wait a minute. I'm like, quarter 121, you guys okay? Uh, We're just clean the kitchen pots up here. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. So when you start saying, uh, I'm like, all right, here we go. And it's like, it's the craziest thing how just listening can tell you a lot. So would the equivalent for the pilot be like, Hey, Coast Guard 6556, I got traffic, uh, one o'clock, and you hear, in the back, you're like, oh, right, I, be- I better look for right. this one. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly right. When you hear the, we call it the caca. You hear the caca go off? Yeah. yeah. You want to listen to that. You want to you look out might, the window. Yeah. I might actually start looking out the window on this one. Yep. Yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, Coast Guard, one, two, traffic alert, traffic alert, one o'clock, two and a half, westbound, they're like, oh, yeah, check that out. I mean, what you're talking about, though, I think it kind of loops into what we call mastery of craft uh, in the Coast Guard, right? And like your first uh, two assignments, at least your first two assignments as a Coast Guard aviator, like you're really trying to master uh, your airframe and becoming the best that you could be. And that can even right. include like, man, the, the engine just spooled down a little bit or like I heard the NR spool up or down and that just didn't sound right, um, which sounds similar to you guys. And um, But I got, a, I got a different tack to take with you, uh, Derek. Uh, what are military aviators or Coast Guard aviators known for of screwing up? Because uh, I know I've messed up a bunch of things in the uh, IFR environment. You got any, uh, any good examples? Yeah, I don't know. You know, the last time I probably talked to a military aircraft, We're I would perfect. probably say it's been a... Yeah, it's been a hot minute. You know, I always joke, and I, I think I might have talked to Ryan about it, but is, the Air Force guys, for example, they just do whatever they want. I mean, it's the craziest thing. You'll yeah. just be like, uh, go direct initial, and then you're like, what heading are you on? <laughs> oh, 180. It's like, why? Well, initial's like a 240. Yeah, who told you to do that? And they're like, uh, Roger. And, and, and you know, that you can barely hear them. The radio is usually never that great. And, and then you go to switch them, and they're like, we need the UHF. And you're like, oh, Craig, Jimmy, what's the UHF for? Uh, you're like, you don't even know it. You don't even, uh, okay, or, uh, push four. You're like, oh, great, here we go. You know, it's like, oh, my goodness. It's just the craziest thing. You work the, the Air Force pilots, you know, they just they just kind of uh, do what they want no matter what you tell them to do. The Coast Guard, I, you guys are awesome. I, I worked you guys primarily. There was a hurricane that had come through. I want to say it was like 2015 mm-hmm. in Columbia. And the Coast Guard was out there for, I mean, weeks. You guys are requesting special VFR and, 
and I'm just like, approve. <laughs> do do whatever you guys want to do. Uh, I mean, approve. Like, hey man, know? are you cool if we fly a hundred feet and blow? And you're like, yeah, man, yeah. knock yeah. yourself out. <laughs> yeah. So so, <laughs> I got a lot because this is this is hilarious. We we actually joke about this at work every now and then. It was um. A lot of guys would, would tease me because they're like, hey, Derek, you know, we saw that you got a, a ride with the Coast Guard, you know, like a couple years ago. Mm-hmm. And like, oh, did you watch The Guardian? I'm like, yeah. I was like, it was an epic movie. I'm oh, like, yeah. dude, in 2006, I was like 13 years old. I thought I, I wanted to be a rescue swimmer. Everybody. Yeah, I thought I was going to be just like Ashton Kutcher, right? So, you know, I'm watching this movie, and the best scene is, and I'm going to probably botch a little bit, but the best scene is, you know, when they're at the bar and, and, and they're at the Navy bar, and they're pretty much like, yeah, you know, when. When 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 the Navy can't go out, we go out. Oh, you know? yeah. So we were just kind of joking the same thing at work. We're like, dude, it's the Coast Guard. Let them go. They do whatever they want. I don't care. <laughs> as long as we're not busting any separation standards, you guys want to go fly over, you know, whatever at, at, at 97 feet? Go ahead. But do it. <laughs> trust you. I trust you to go do it. If you guys say that you're going to be, you know, flying around this area, I mean, it's like, it's a no-brainer. Yeah. I've never had any issues uh, another, uh, with the Coast Guard. Another one for you, uh, because I have a tendency to just ruin a radio call every once in a while. And just, like, <laughs> oh, the boy. words don't come out right. I usually, like, end on, like, a turn direction that I either say incorrectly or it, it, the word doesn't even exist. And then I kind of just trail off and hope that you guys can make sense of it on the other end of the other end of the radio. Are there calls that you guys get that you just start laughing or you try and like have to keep a serious face where you look at some, you know, coworker and you're like, like, look at this guy. Oh, we, Oh, it's, it's the funniest thing. I, I, for example, you check in, I give a transmission and when you repeat it back, I'm like out loud. No dummy. You know what I mean? It's like, that's yeah. what happens, right? So you guys, you guys are checking. You'll say, hey, New York Approach, Coast Guard 7101, heading of uh, 010 at 5,000. Coast Guard 010, fighting 060 to 718, 3,000. Uh, zero, no, don't he? <laughs> 060, You know what I mean? So it's like you're saying it out loud to your coworkers, yeah. you know, but then you get back on the mic and you're like, you would never know that I just said something terribly about you. Know? So it's, oh, yeah. It's kind of funny. The I'm one glad. thing that I think we have a lot of pet peeves about, though, is it seems like there isn't a big emphasis lately that we're noticing with a lot of the commercial carriers um, when we give two instructions. So what happens is, is I'll say Spirit 712, turn left, heading 360, contact approach 120.15. But they have to repeat three things back because you have to say that plus the call sign. Yeah. So flighting three, was it 360? And what was your frequency again? And you're yeah. like, holy... Or they'll get flooding 360, and what was the frequency again? And it's like 360, contact approach, 120.15. Yep. Okay, 360 heading, 2015, Spirit 712, have a great day. And it's like the time I just spent doing that with you, that was my turn to say something to somebody else. 701, six from Buzz, heading 190, 2,500 feet till established, quite out of two lot. And it's like, <laughs> oh, man, I'm behind. So now I have to use a more aggressive turn. So if there's anything I would stress, you know, for anyone out there that's listening is, is practicing is practicing being able to take two instructions and well, I should say one instruction, but two things within that instruction and being able to repeat your call sign. And when I think about you guys who have like straight numbers, Coast Guard two one, yeah, you guys have a lot more numbers to repeat back than Delta one oh one or 
United 14, 12, you know what I mean? It's just different. Um, but being able to say, turn right hitting 060 to some 18, 4,000, 060, 4,000. It's like, for some reason, certain pilots, they just really stumble on that a lot. I mean, that's something that I struggled with when I was learning to fly for sure. Like mm-hmm. I remember those initial, like, yep. Uh, maintain heading one, five, zero, 2000 till established. You'll care for the ILS one seven. And it was literally like the hardest thing I'd ever do to try and repeat any of that <laughs> as the instructor behind mm-hmm. me is probably just giggling until he keys up and says, you know, what you're supposed to do back to you guys. So especially like for places down, especially down here with the uh, Navy flight school, you know, and training grounds, like I couldn't imagine being an air traffic controller and just like, all right, guys, come well, on now. Like I got 18 yeah. of you trying to do approaches to the same three airports and nobody can mm-hmm. give me the right call back. Oh, that was definitely the yeah. hardest, hardest thing I had to learn. I remember being T-34, we did a cross country <laughs> and so we're, we were landing at like DFW or something crazy and they work us in, but the approach in there, it was just like, there's like four different frequencies that they handed us off to. And I couldn't read back a single one <laughs> and they were nice about it at first. Right. And then after that, they're like, dude, we have a lot of traffic. I need you to repeat back and change frequencies when I ask you. And my instructor's yeah. like throwing like approach plates at me and pencils <laughs> of like, bro, you've got to do this. That's when you throw the word solo after your call sign. <laughs> and it's like, hell Yeah. Oh man. It, it, it's, just, it's a crazy environment. You know, this environment is the wildest. And, you know, speaking of communications and, and transmissions, what comes to mind is we have a pretty cool opportunity to work a lot with the DA and the FBI. And, um, what I love about those guys is how professional they are. Um, considering the fact that they're doing whatever they're doing, you know, typically probably surveillance or whatever. Um, but, uh, you know, they're, they're flying this airplane. I think there's probably at least, I would say a minimum two of them up there. You know, one person, you know, working the radios and flying, the other person doing whatever they do again. But we have a pretty cool chance to work with those guys. And they never miss a traffic call. They never miss a transmission. I mean, they're just so, so sharp. And I'm wondering if it's a little bit of a give and take, like, hey, we better be on our game because they're accommodating us. You know, it's tough. You know, these guys can be on the move in an instant. You know, it's like, they're, I'm going to make something up here, but let's say they're like 30 miles northwest of, you know, Newark flying around at whatever altitude, and they'll just be like, hey, approach, we're on the move. And you're like, where? And they'll say, we don't know. Like, we don't know. And that's usually how you know they're following someone for the most part. You know what I mean? It's, it's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. It's pretty, pretty cool. But, you know, we try to, you know, work with those guys and, 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 and get planes out of the way and, and do what we got to do for them. But uh, they're very professional. I, I love working with them. Um, can't say a bad thing about them. And like I said, they're always on, on their game when it comes to, to, to working the radios. You know, it's like, yeah. I don't know, there's some corporate pilots that are pretty good at it. Some corporate pilots are just terrible. You know, I never expect a student pilot to really do a fantastic job. I'm a little bit more patient with them, you know. Thank you for um, that. Yeah, for sure, for sure. That's important. You know, it's like, when I see a Cherokee come off of Morristown going out to Allentown and it says practice IFR approaches in the, in the remarks, I'm not probably giving that guy two things in one transmission. I'm probably just like, Cherokee 746, sliding 270. Oh, 270. You know, it's like, I just want to move on. I don't want to have to hear, um, is that, um, uh, it's like, I don't have time for that right now. I don't have time for that, bro. I need to move on. I need to move on. I cannot, you know, and there's been instances like that too. When I used to work in Atlanta, there was a huge population of uh, students down there as well. And uh, there was one point I actually got on the frequency and I just said, Diamond 7 Alpha Mike, is there a flight instructor on board? And, oh, and all man. of a sudden, you hear the flight instructor see up like, hey, I'm here. I'm like, listen, 
I know you hear this because I'm the one talking to all the planes. Now is not a good time to try to win the talk on the radio. Like, you guys <laughs> need to do that stuff on the ground and go through some simulation. But now is not the time. You know, you're talking a full rate going into the Cat Peach Tree with everyone coming in to land at, at lunchtime. Mm-hmm. And you want to sit here and, uh, um, uh, six from heading two four mm-hmm. uh, two thousand till seven. It was what probably was that, that guy's like, check ride. He probably just ruined his whole day. Yeah, like, dude, just the instructor's like, dude, I can't pass you. Like, hard. <laughs> the, the, the controller came no, in and told just, you to shut up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a time and a place, and that wasn't the time or place. Oh. Mm-hmm. Hey, Derek, let me tell you about the thing I screwed up last week. So you can tell me uh, maybe what air traffic control was looking at. So oh, okay. I uh, I departed out of uh, Mobile on our course rules, which is a thousand feet. Until we get to this uh, this local uh, geographic point, which is right at the edge of the Class Charlie surface, right? And the shelf above uh, starts right at about 1,400 feet. Um, and we were going to do a climb to do some training a little bit further to the south at 2,000. Uh, and I just... I, I wasn't a good safety pilot and I also didn't think about it, but we, we started our climb a little bit too early and we definitely climbed into that shelf as we were climbing up to 2000, probably for maybe a mile. Uh, we were probably in the shelf for about a mile. So I don't um, think we need Derek to settle this. Sounds like see, you busted class. No, I, I completely did. Right. <laughs> but I'm off frequency and uh, it's at, it. it's at night. Right. And there's not a lot of traffic at that point, And we're in the South part of the, uh, of the airspace, but like, Obviously, I popped up on their radar scope, and I wasn't on frequency anymore, but they just released me uh, from that point, so they know it's me. Um, are you guys cursing me out? Like, I, I felt like an idiot, and I've already <laughs> told people about this, and I think that's what's good about our culture is like, hey, here's the one I really boned up, and um, I'm glad that somebody pointed it out to me as well that we climbed into it. But I don't know. What are your thoughts when people accidentally do stuff like that? Because it happens. I screwed it up, and I'll do it again probably. Hopefully not. I don't know. I think my biggest thing that I find, you know, it's funny is I've got this, this boss I work with. He's awesome, dude. And he's been in air traffic for 25 years. And you know what he told me? He's like, sometimes if it doesn't affect or compromise the safety of the operation, dude, sometimes you just got to like, let it go. Like, like if there's a chance to educate a pilot, you can do it nicely. I don't believe in like trying to berate anybody or trying to make them feel small in the frequency, dude. I just don't, I don't believe in that. And I'll tell you why you could go back into work the next day and all of a sudden you need someone to bail you out. You know what I'm saying? Mm, yeah. And it, it could be a pilot that literally gives you 4,000 feet a minute and he bails you out and you're like, wow, if that pilot didn't do that, I probably would have put those two together. You know what I'm trying to say? Like, yeah, I mean, it, there's it goes, times in this job, it's like, it's weird. It's like, some people call it karma, vibes, God, whatever you want to call it. No, I think All it goes I'm back to what you were saying, Derek, is that like, you've got to be humble, man. Like, yeah, you've really got to be humble because the next day it's, it's you screwing up and a pilot being like, hey, you just cleared me to take off, but there's, there's someone on a half a mile final and you're like, oh my, you're right. Whole, whole position. Thank you. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, yeah. And and I feel like it's stuff like that in aviation, whether it's air traffic control or whether you're a pilot, that hopefully there's like some things that happen every six months that are small that don't affect, um, you know, operations. But it kind of scares right. the shit out of yourself to be like, man, I need to be humble. I need to be sharp. I need to be on top of my game every single time right. I show up to work. 
Hundred mm-hmm. percent. It's like, for example, um, we have a uh, uh, a departure procedure off of Peterborough. Um, I, I've got four flight in front of me. I can just bring it up. I'm not sure if you guys have it, but if you look at, um, uh, I think if you get it one day, um, yeah, I'm pulling it up. What's it called? Um, hold on one second. What's the identifier for Teterboro? T-E-B. T-E-B. If you go to procedure and departure, there's a departure called the Rudy six. Okay. Yeah. And got it up. Yeah, so if you look at that, uh, you'll see there's a 240 heading coming off of runway 24. They go to Davum, they make a right turn to 262. Yeah, they cross went at 1500. The reason being is now I'm going to make you go back out one. Yeah, go to Newark now. Okay, EWR procedure approach ILS or localizer runway 22 left. Okay. And if you look at the fix, whether it be the plan view or the profile view at the bottom, you see gimme, it says at or above 2,500. Mm-hmm. It's because when the Newark arrivals come in on the localizer, the Teterboro runway 24 SID is directly beneath. Mm-hmm. IFR separation is 1,000 feet or three miles. You're not going to have three miles because they literally pass over on top of each other. So how is this departure procedure built in? They force the airplanes to depart off of runway 24, stopping at 1500, and then climbing up to 2000. Well, the Newark arrivals, they stay at or above 2500 feet, then they follow the glide on in. I cannot begin to tell you how many times a pilot will bust that Wentz restriction mm-hmm. and climb up. And what do you think happens to the Newark arrival? They get an RA. Yeah. The next thing you know, you're like, Oh, got to work that guy again. So the pilot gets a pilot deviation. Now, again, calling it good vibes, God, whatever you want to call it, the amount of times that it's happened where a, a plane isn't there, man, it's, it's awesome. Because I'll tell you, there's a time and a place where that pilot can affect another aircraft. You can bet I'm on the horn and I'm like, Ocean 7 Alpha Mike, what are you doing? You're supposed to be crossing once at 1,500 feet. You just busted the altitude. Mm-hmm. Go back down, or you'll just say maintain 2,000 at that point, depending on what the situation is. You know, And then you're going to say, like, hey, possible pilot deviation. Call this number, yada, 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 when you land. And they get the talking to. You know, that's why I say this whole thing goes back to the system works if everybody does their job. And if you need help, ask. But it's really bad when people don't ask for help or they need clarification and you just assume. It's the worst thing they do in aviation is assume. It's the worst. But when a pilot busts that restriction and there's no one there, this goes back to what I was just saying. I'm probably going to be a little bit more lenient and say, you know what? Here's a chance to educate this guy, not yell at him. Goes from 7 Alpha Mike, New York. Yeah, we're up with you at 2,000. I see that. Goes from 7 Alpha Mike. For future reference, you got to fly the Rudy 6 departure procedure. You busted the shit. You got to be really careful next time. The New York arrivals are overhead at 2,500 descending for 22 left. You got to be very careful next time. Sir, we are so, so sorry. We'll absolutely make sure we take a peek at that chart when we land next time. You got it. Go from 7 Alpha Mike, flight in 270, climb, maintain 10,000, 10,000. All right, 270, climb to 10, 7 Alpha Mike. And everyone's okay. There's a difference. It's like you have to know when to sort of like be that guy that's like, hey, man, you know, you got to call this number. And there's a time and place to go, you know what? 
listen, he did the wrong thing, but nobody was affected by this. So let me educate this guy real quick. You know, you just have to have those moments. You have to have them. Yeah. Yeah, you definitely um, uh, said the thing that no pilot wants to hear a lot of times from controllers. Hey, call this number when you land. Uh, And I've had that experience once. And and luckily it it was actually... um, we did the right thing or we were following what we were supposed to do and there was confusion, but man, I got that call as soon as I took off, uh, on an IFR, like point A to point B flight. And it was a two and a half hour flight. And I got two and a half hours to sit in the aircraft and steam about it and be like, wait, what did I do wrong? Oh, shoot. I'm going to have to call the ops boss and explain mm-hmm. myself and all this kind of stuff. And yeah, I wish I had it when I was right before landing. Cause it wouldn't have made me sweat for two and a half hours, but it definitely, uh, it, it's a call that not every pilot wants to get for sure, but it, it's an important one too, especially when you've got a, a situation like you're just describing. Yeah. It's just, I don't know. I think the whole thing comes full circle and you know, you learn to, like I said, it, it really humbles you. You know, I go into work <clears throat> and sometimes I'm like, wow, I'm like, Ooh, yeah, that was uh, interesting. Yeah. Like, but I, I don't know. You think back to certain situations, it's like the same thing. Like you don't talk shit about your coworkers, you know, mm-hmm. because just when you think you're amazing, you can go to plug in and then all of a sudden something happens and you're like, man, I wonder if I shouldn't have talked shit about that one coworker. Am I? <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, uh, Derek, you got any other parting shots? Uh, and we, we'd like to end our show with a, uh, a question we'd like to ask everybody about some advice they've gotten in the past. But before we go into that, you got anything else you wanted to touch on? I don't know. I think, uh, for the most part, I, I just would say, you know, my biggest thing that I think is important in, in this entire system is, is just talking. Yeah. Is, um, it's weird, you know, pilots have the most unique personalities. And I, and I would say that I don't think I have a pilot personality. You know, there's a lot of pilots out there that are more like to themselves, kind of quiet, not really like boisterous and just, you know, just very like pilots are just pilots. You can usually always tell when, it's like when you see a police officer, like, yeah, I got a cop, you know, it's like a fireman. It's, we have these unique personalities and we love our, we love our jobs. You know, we, we love our careers. You know, we're, we're, we're so, you know, happy to say, yeah, I fly a, a Jayhawk. I fly a Gulfstream. I fly a, a, a Dreamliner. But then you get on the frequency and you guys don't want to talk to us if you're in trouble. It's the craziest thing. Yeah. So it's almost like, hey, all I'll say is I get it. Aviate, navigate, communicate. Trust me, I'm very well aware. My main thing is if you think you need something, we're not the FAA police. Like we are literally human beings. We have families and girlfriends and wives and kids just like you guys do. And we just want everyone to like go home. That's, it's the craziest thing. But when someone says they're in trouble, there's this sort of flip of the switch that I think sort of comes on for most of us where it's like, all right, we're not joking around right now. Like, what do you need? I will, I will do everything I can to help you. I can't, I can't go up there and fly the airplane with you, but from my seat, I will literally do whatever I can physically mm-hmm. possible. You need me to go find the VFR conditions. I will get on the horn. I will call the adjacent sectors. I will get my controllers involved. Is it too busy? Are you a student pilot and you need me to shed some airplanes on a frequency because it's too congested? Fine. Hey, Jim, I need you to take this brickyard. I need you to take this American Sally. I need you to take this Dreamliner. I, I, I got to shed planes because I want to just be able to talk to this one or two pilots. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, do we need to stop departures and get help? Do we need to, you know, uh, you know, uh, do anything? It's I could go on, but 
I guess my biggest thing is, you know, we're not there to, oh man, I'm in trouble or, you know, they're going to declare an emergency for me. I can't begin to tell you how many times a pilot goes, hey, approach, we've got a flap issue. We do want to return to Newark and we want the truck standing by, but we're not an emergency. And it's like, are you dumb? Yeah, like, that sounds like an emergency, man. <laughs> it sounds like an emergency to me, right? So of course we, you know, we declare an emergency for them, and, and they don't realize it. But it's like Gulfstream Seven Alpha Charlie. Did you know you've been in an emergency for the last forty minutes? It's like, oh, really? You're like, yeah. Ever since you said you wanted the trucks to roll, and I asked <laughs> you for your souls on board and fuel and pounds, yes, you've been in an emergency aircraft. <laughs> like, so I, I got to ask you on that one. I got a, I got a bone to pick with you since we're talking about it. Yeah. Um. Sometimes I feel like my hesitancy to declare mercy is I know that the second I say it, you're going to ask me two questions that I don't give a crap about, which is state souls on board and how much fuel. And you're like, yeah, man, sure, I'm, not, sure. I'm not worried about that. So I'm assuming you're required to ask those questions. We are. We yeah. are, obviously. You know, search and rescue purposes, God forbid something happens to you. Yeah. What we're looking for, and yada, yada, yada. Yeah. But especially, you know, especially with VFR, you got to think too, especially if the VFR aircraft is have an emergency, that's definitely important too because you got to think they don't file flight plans with us. They might get flight following, but right. it's not like, for example, a commercial airline has got to manifest and tells everybody that's on there has right. that infant. But that's stuff that we, that we want to know. You know, this is stuff that we pass on to, to you know, our, you know, aircraft rescue firemen is that they want to know how many fueling pounds, you know, of course they want to know if there's any hazardous materials on board, any infants, you know, they want to know anything special yeah. uh, that they should know about. So um, it's just, you know, uh, it, of course, also as well, it's, it's TYA, right? It's, it's cover your ass. You know, yep. you got to protect yourself in the process. Everything's recorded. Um, and it may not be a question that I'll immediately ask you because I do want to just sort of figure out, like, if anything, one of my priorities in that whole rundown of checklist is what are your desires? Like, what are your yeah. intentions? Like, your soul's on board and fuel. Like, I'll get that. Now, if it's like a min-fuel situation, that's a little bit different. You know, if you're declaring minimum fuel, Okay, yeah. how much time do we have? Well, we've got time for an approach, and we got to get out of here after that. Yeah. Okay, if that's the case, turn right heading one four zero, go direct to the airport. It's like I'm not going to put you in a long sequence if you're like, "Hey, this is our second time going around," you know. And and, and this is my opinion, but I personally feel, as in my opinion, I treat maybe the commercial carriers a little bit different than I would maybe let's say a corporate hawker jet. You know, if this guy says approach. Hey, you know, we had a pretty strong headwind on the way out here. We're minimum fuel. Uh, you know, it's showing overcast 300 feet. And I'm like, there's a potential for this guy to go around. I'm probably going to be a little bit more on my game with this guy mm-hmm. and give him a little bit more attention than maybe I would someone else because I feel as if, you know, the commercial carriers, they have so many resources, it's not even funny. They can communicate with their ops. Hey, you know, if we don't make it into Newark, where do we go? They just tell them, you're going to Baltimore. Yeah. <laughs> this corporate jet pilot, dude, they don't know if they should go to Albany. They don't know if they should go back to Ohio. They're usually pretty like Part 91. You know, there may not be some sort of safety management system. You know, these guys are just two guys flying with a couple of guys in the back and you know, they're just so hesitant on, you know, maybe communicating with us. They're so ready to get on the ground and land. And it's like so easy to get tunnel vision. And as someone that's been sitting there working the sector, let's say for the last 45 minutes, and I know that, you know, we've had to go around in the last, let's say, 15 of those minutes, I'm probably going to be like, hey, hey, Hawker 7 X ray pop, just uh, curious. You know, we've had a uh, go around about 15 minutes ago with a G650. 
which would be kind of rare, but it happens. You know, what are your intentions if you don't get into Teterboro? Like sort of just prepping their minds a little bit and getting them right. to think because they're probably just thinking like, yep, we're landing at Teterboro. This is it. And it's like, this may not be it. You guys <laughs> might be going around and then you get airborne and you're like, well, shit, we didn't plan for all this extra traveling. Now it's like we've got men fuel yeah. and we don't even know where we're going yet. Hey, approach, can you help us out? Any chance you know what the weather is? And it's like, here we go. So you're always sort of like, again, being humble because just when you think it's going to be a chill, easy day, it's usually not an easy day. I've noticed that about air traffic. When you're usually like the slowest, that's when someone blows through the localizer. And you're like, wait a minute. I gave this guy a good turn on to the final. Why'd they go through the localizer? And they come back around. They're like, hey, approach. We just lost our LMAT. I'm like, oh, shit. Here we go. So you're always sort of like on your toes in air traffic. I never take it for granted. So my main thing from, from me to the community, whoever's listening, is just just talk with us. You know, if you've got yeah. something going on, you need help. It's like, for example, a pilot keys up and starts to make half a transmission. Uh, never mind. It's like, nah, 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 nah. Don't play that game with me. What were you going to say? Talk to me. I want to know. Mm-hmm. Um, We just, um, well, you know, our GPS just uh, failed real quick. That would be a good thing to know. I would like to know that. Because, uh, are you ready to shoot the approach right now or no? Yeah, we could probably use about 30 left in a delay vector. That's exactly why I was just asking you to tell me what's going on. Stop trying to hide from me. I know pilots want to resolve issues and get everything taken care of. But in my mind, when I'm sequencing you for approach, I'm thinking that you're ready to go now. It's the same thing. Everyone knows in the world of aviation, if you are a jet and you get to the end and I say blank, 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 call sign, cleared for takeoff, and you say, we need a moment, that's not my fault. Jet traffic is always assumed ready at the end. So if you're not ready, tell me. Same thing in that instance. If you have a problem and you're not ready to shoot the approach, tell me. Yeah. That's all I'm asking is for you to just talk to me. Yeah, that That's plain, my rant, guys. Plain, plain language. You know, like, what do you need? I don't know. Uh, can I keep this heading for five minutes? Like, I don't even Absolutely. know what I need right now. Like, let, let me do that. some aviating yeah. right now. Yeah, I love that. Plain yeah. English. I love that. Seriously, that is such... Dude, you just honestly nailed it. Because, you know, the 71065, it's a great, like, piece of, you know, uh, rule book for us. But I can't begin to tell you how many times you talk to a student pilot and they'll just be like, uh, you know, it's kind of bumpy. Well, I'm using inference here. Are you saying you want higher or lower, right? You know, yeah. a professional pilot, you guys will see, hey, New York, Coast Guard 7812, it's uh, moderate uh, tribulation here at 5,000. Any chance we can get 6,000? And do you have any ride reports at six or seven? Okay, no problem at all. Uh, give me one second. I take you seven out of the trolley. What's the ride like at eight? Smooth ride. Great. Climb maintain 8,000. Climb maintain 7,000. But sometimes you have to sort of like, help these other pilots sort of try to communicate and convey what they're trying to get through mm-hmm. to you. And, and, um, that's where I think having passion about your job and, and caring every time you plug in, is so important. It's the same thing for you guys. You guys get behind, you know, the cyclic, you got to be on your game. It's not like a, well, I hope this works out. It's like, this is going to work out. Yeah. Same thing when you plug in, like as long as we follow our training and do our job, this will work out. And, being, you know, it's like how many times you guys probably talk about like bingo fuel, like, hey, we got about five more minutes and then we got to head out. <laughs> like, that's it. Every that's flight. Really it. <laughs> Every flight, Derek. Yeah. 
Yeah, you can't just be like, yeah, I guess we can hang out here a little longer. <laughs> it doesn't yeah. work that way. Never happens. Yeah, I really yeah. appreciate you uh, bringing that sentiment up because uh, it is really important. Just plain language. Hey, what do you need? Um, so with that, uh, do you have any uh, aviation advice that you'd like to share with uh, any of our listeners uh, or, uh, you know, other air traffic controllers, anybody out there? Um, something that maybe you either heard from a mentor or yours or something you'd like to give to those coming up behind you? Uh, what you got? Yeah, I would say I would probably make this more of a personal sentiment, but um, I don't know how you guys grew up or anything like that. But I would say, man, aviation has definitely changed my life, you know. Um, I'm so glad to be a part of like this community, man. It's, you know, every time you meet a pilot at a six wing rotary, it's crazy how you can just sit down and talk. And, um, I would say the coolest thing is the amount of knowledge that you can learn through a casual conversation. Mm-hmm. Like if I just randomly met you two at, let's say like the bar around the corner from here and I was like, yeah, I'm a controller. And like, no way we're pilots the amount of knowledge that you can learn through this casual conversation without it having to be like a professional setting, a training setting, a podcast is unbelievable. So I would just encourage everyone to just continue to, to again, like talk to one another. But, you know, uh, again, I would also encourage those that are in this career field to, I don't know, like share your knowledge with other people, you know, share the yeah. knowledge with people that are out there maybe thinking about becoming a pilot or a controller. You just hyped our uh, you, you hyped our pi- uh, weekly pilot meetings, uh, drinking beers, having a casual setting, telling stories. A lot of yeah, it's like the, there. Yeah, it's the coolest thing. You know, someone's like, yeah, you know, my PFD went out and I had to press this button to do that. Someone else, oh, that actually happened to me one time when I was flying. Oh, where'd that happen? How'd you get through that? You know, and all of a sudden, it's like, oh, I never thought about doing that. And I'll have to think about that for next time. It's like one of the coolest things that I actually talk about all the time is when a pilot checks in, whether, again, rotary fixed wing. And I say, yeah, plan the ILS from my one nine approach. Turn left, direct to Unville. You're thinking to myself, oh great, okay, I got to plug the ILS one nine. Okay, pr- procedure. Okay, direct two. And you've already flown five miles before you've even gone direct to the fix. So what do I say? Hey, you know, helicopter, yada yada yada. Turn left heading one four zero. One able direct to Unville. Expediting that process, giving the pilots a little bit of relief, and not making them feel so much pressure. Like, oh crap, he's probably thinking, we're not, we're not even direct Unville yet. Crap, crap, crap. <laughs> It's like mm-hmm. heading 140, get you going that way, direct unveil when you can. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like everyone, if they just do their job again, <laughs> comes back to that concept, just do your job, then everyone, I think, um, you know, can succeed. You know, I guess my other piece, too, I would just say is, you know, aviation seriously is very, like, unforgiving. You know, I, I think about it all the time. Every time I go to work, I think to myself, like, man, how do we move that many amount of airplanes? without a mishap today. Mm-hmm. Like, we move a lot of planes, you know? Like, these airplanes, they they, they, they they fly so much, you know? Some of these call signs I see, I'm like, I joke around pilots all the time, you know? I see this one call from my flight at Cedarboro, 501 Lima Sierra. They fly every day, and I'll key up, and I'll just joke around, and I'll say, you guys ever get a day off? And they'll say, yeah, thank you, they hired about 10 of us, but every now and then we do get some time off. <laughs> I'm like, you know, these, these pilots are just so conditioned you know, to everything going well, but I would just say, you know, training is very important. Um, communication is very important and, uh, just be humble. Just definitely be humble and, um, that's it. You yeah. Know, just enjoy it. Yeah. Enjoy it. Well, we, we can't thank you enough, Derek. We really appreciate your uh, perspective and, and coming from, you know, the other side of the radio. It's, it's super helpful for us to hear as pilots and, uh, 
thanks for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Derek. I appreciate your time, guys. This has been a blast. Yeah, it was really fun talking with you. Like I said, hopefully we can definitely cross some uh, cross paths soon and uh, definitely get on down. I'd love to see what you guys do again. Savannah was cool, but definitely would definitely uh, do it again for sure. Yeah, come on down to Mobile. Yeah. Let's do it. <laughs> All right, have a good one, man. Thanks, bro. I appreciate it, guys. We say-